Hi everyone, and welcome to Let's Talk Risk with Dr. Naveen Agarwal, where each week we talk about a topic related to risk management of medical devices. I'm your host, Naveen Agarwal, principal and founder at Achieve, where my personal mission is to help you achieve success in risk management. In this episode, I'm joined by Jade Moon, who is a quality manager at Terimu Medical Corporation, and Arun Matthew, who is an Associate Director of Risk Management at AppV. We talk about many different topics related to real-world practice of risk management in the industry, some of the challenges and best practices. We had this conversation as part of a LinkedIn live audio event in front of a live audience. You're about to hear a recording of our conversation. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. So I want to get started by welcoming Jayat and Arun. Uh, please uh, go ahead and introduce yourself to our uh, att attendees today and tell us a little bit about your personal story, yeah, your career journey, maybe a little bit, some pivotal moments in your career that uh, helped you grow in a big way. Uh, let us know what you do now, and uh, let's get going. So, Jayat, I'll start with you first. Hey, thanks, Noreen. So, my name is Jayat Moon, and uh, I think a lot of people know me as the author of the book published by ASQ, uh, titled Foundations of Quality Risk Management. Uh, right now, I'm in the medical device industry, and uh, before that, uh, Mike started my career in the power industry and in the electrical industry. And my pivotal moment, I guess, Naveen, would be, in fact, my very first week where I was assigned to do a risk and failure analysis on a boiler pump. And risk management hasn't left me since <laughs> that day. So uh, I think one unique perspective I bring is that uh, I've had the chance and the privilege to see risk management practices in various different industries. And my attempt is always to synthesize best practices from there. So uh, that's uh, that's a little bit about me. Wonderful. And guys, again, I want to emphasize quality risk management by Jay. It's a great resource. He has compiled a lot of good information with great insights. So check it out when you can. And I will also share that link with you in the notes for this event. Arun, welcome. Please uh, share a little bit about your personal story. Good morning. Uh, Narin, uh, thanks for having me and uh, looking ahead for a good discussion. Um, for me, uh, I, I started understanding risk when, when I saw it first in a technical check for for the review in the uh, audit. And I was I was interested in knowing how they created and identified the hospital risk. So um, then I, I looked into the ISO 14971 and understood the basics of risk management and the appliances all had a lot of information about how the risk management could be conducted, right? So that was like, I feel like there was a Bible for risk management at that time. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and then after learning from that theory, I had an opportunity to work with a different medical devices company through the service company that I was working in. So that helped me to understand that the same process can be applied in different ways. And that also helped me understand that, you know, 
the risk management is not just one process. It is it, it is habit using the different tools and how to apply that same process in the way how or what you're designing or your post market or in any process that you work in. Right? <laughs> yes, yes. So and uh now that knowledge I according uh, the the spine industry wherein I was I was tasked with doing management for spine as final products and at the time people were not able to understand risk management that well. And I felt like based with the knowledge I like create a poetry or show some pictorial ways to explain risk management and that really helped me to help the team understand how what they are looking for when can we say failure mode or or like how the uh, the each form can lead into a overall harm and process like that. So I think I thought with the some of the uh, understanding of risk, I, I started also teaching the other people about risk and that really helped me gain more knowledge in it, right? So with that with that experience I started implementing risk management bigger organization and also uh, like bringing a lot of people into the same process. So that that really helped. Now, Perfect. Uh, I'm, now I am in the drug industry and now what I'm seeing here is that uh, I'm learning about how to implement this in clinical trials, drug development, competition products and cybersecurity. Um, but in general, the philosophy of risk is first management is the same. So yes, the application yes. is different. Yeah, so I think you make a good point that risk cuts across the board, right? And different industries, uh, different ways it is practiced, and uh, different ways to communicate about risk. So uh, what I want to start the conversation with you guys that you have seen risk in many different industries, many different application scenarios. So Jit, starting with you first, uh, just maybe what is your view on the term risk itself? I know sometimes it causes a lot of confusion, and uh, you have looked at it in a lot more detail. What does the term risk mean to you? Yeah, yeah, thanks, Naveen. Um, I think I'm going to take a viewpoint which is not very common, and in some cases, it's um, um, not popular as well. Um, as far as medical devices and pharmaceuticals are concerned, the, the, it, the risk is always considered as something which is negative. Um, but when you branch out into the ISO 9000 world and a little bit more than that, uh, the risk is defined as the effect of uncertainty on your objectives. Uh -huh. And frankly, I subscribe to that definition because even though I work a lot on the product safety risk side, if your objective is safety, the effect of uncertainty on safety will catch that. And uh -huh. that will be defined as your negative risk, right? And I say that because, not because I want to start talking about financial risk or things like that. However, every time you make a change to a product or something like that, as reliability engineers, as design engineers, by default, we don't think about process risk, or even if we do, we don't think about business risk that much, right? <laughs> However, somewhere up the chain, somebody's making that decision with or without a risk form or anything of that sort, right? That mm -hmm. that business risk and the the tragedy is that a lot of times that business risk can trump your safety risk. Mm -hmm. So that's why I like to define risk in a way that top management can also subscribe to that definition. And I feel like that has worked for me. So I like to take a oh. very macro approach for that. 
Wonderful, wonderful. So you are looking at risk in a more holistic way and you are saying safety is one aspect of it because, of course, safety is one of our objectives. Correct. And it's a, it's a cumulative set of objectives that we should look at. Great. So I think we, we hope to talk a little bit more about that. Arun, if you are able to um, uh, join us again with your, uh, check your mic once again, there was a lot of static before, but uh, I would like to invite the same thoughts from you. What is your view on risk? Yeah, so risk for me has always been about safety, right? And uh, I think that's because I was in medical device industry and also drug, also the same thing as the philosophy, right? And safety is the key here. But when I learn more and, and see the risk, uh, risk definitions through ISO 3100, the, the, I see risk is something that creates a burden to achieving or goal is what I, I see in our risk as. And I think I agree with Jay there. Like, it's not just one, safety is only one aspect of risk. There are multiple. Wonderful. So this is interesting, right? So I think let's let's pursue this line of thought a little bit. You know, certainly we talk about safety risk management in medical device industry a lot. However, risk is broader than that. And uh, we have had many conversations here um, on this forum as well about risk-based decision-making or risk-based thinking. Uh, when we are making those decisions, we are looking at all kind of different risks. So, um, Jed, maybe I'll start with you again. How do you appropriately communicate different risks? Uh, have you found some difficulties or some best practices that you can share in communicating different risks? Yeah, and uh, that's a profound question, Naveen. Um, I think when you say different, there's a whole spectrum of things. Uh, what I do is I'll focus on something which is, I would say, a, a twin sibling of safety, which is reliability, uh -huh. right? Uh, and that is something which, from the post-market side, can be easy to get numbers from, um, at least from bird's eye view, and then those can be fed back into, uh, you know, your 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 design reliability stuff. However, um, the best practice there, and especially in the whole environment of ISO 14971, which, by the way, is a safety risk management standard, <laughs> not, not a reliability risk management standard. Uh, in context of that, I think organizations have to decide how they are looking at reliability and how they are looking at safety. Because <laughs> your hazard analysis and your... Because FMEA, it's a reliability risk tool, <laughs> right? It is not built to be a safety risk tool. You can... Of course, there's there's changes you can make to that. So best practice for me would be first to be clear in your head that safety risk and reliability risk are two things which feed maybe into the same place, but the path could be different. For example, since I've got a lot of uh, foundation in post-market, I'll tell you any malfunctions or defects the numbers and the occurrences you get out of post-market data or clinical data or registries or what have you, regardless of whether that causes a harm, that can go into your reliability risk parameters. Nice. On the other hand, a lot of times when people are doing literature reviews and things like that, looking at registries, the, the clinical side of the post-market, you will not get that much malfunction data, but you'll get a lot of data on harms and stuff that feeds into your safety risk management. So there's various ways to uh, look at this. However, I think 
step one is to make sure that, you know, it's not just one dimensional uh, way to manage risk for medical devices or pharma. Like there, there's various dimensions to it. And these are just two I'm talking about. Oh, that is a fantastic way of uh, putting this together that we are getting a lot of information from post, post-market. And uh, what I'm hearing you say is that if we focus so much only on the data related to injuries or harms, uh, we may not feed back the malfunction data appropriately into our reliability improvement work processes. That was one message that I kind of heard between the lines there. Uh, it's both, and they are related. So we have to figure out a way to extract all the relevant information, feed it back. So Jit, you also shared that recently you have moved to a design quality assurance role and with your experience in post-market, I think you are the best person to talk about that connectivity and linkage. Um, are there any kind of uh, interesting best practices you can share with, with all of us that will help us coordinate all this work through our different functions? I think one thing I might want to talk about is uh, a lot of people follow um, a lot of people follow the P1, P2 method in 14971, even though that's not an explicit requirement. Mm-hmm. A lot of companies are carrying out their hazard analysis, trying to semi-quantify or wherever possible quantify these numbers. And I, what I would like to guide people that the P1 number is going to be how you interpret that. Where, like, is it the probability of sequence of events leading to hazardous situation? Where does your defect lie or where your malfunction lies, which, which leads to hazardous situation? The quantification of that number is crucial if you want to equilibrate these two kinds of risk. <laughs> and then even in pre-validation stages, you can use that that number and you can get to that number based on your verification activities, which comprise of those malfunctions or those defects, which results from uh, you know testing of those particular design design inputs, right? So I think that is one space where if companies pay more attention instead of just qualitatively assigning something, <laughs> there could be there could be uh, uh, efficiencies gained. Oh, very interesting. So what you were saying is that uh, depending upon how we define the P1, first of all, it's not mandatory, but depending upon how we define it, we have an opportunity to connect the reliability side of the equation with the safety side. Right. Oh, this is this is great. Arun, I want to invite you also to share your thoughts about uh, trying to link this, uh, you know, post-market design. What has been your experience? and finding opportunities to provide that linkage. Yeah, so most of my career, I have been in the design space. The way I connected to also was through this post-market design reconnectivity. And um, it, is, it was very interesting to learn from Jayat about how the data what I create, the design phase, is used to the post-market and how he determines to take any action uh-huh. or whether to ignore the the complaint based on the risk what we identify, right? So, uh-huh. so it, I think it is very much connected. You are in design phase, you are proactively seeing what can go wrong. And in the post market, you are getting, you are monitoring the data to see if actually what you 
to have design and what your thought is the design phase model is is accurate right uh, if there is any change you are you have to react to it with some design changes and also or or making improvements in the process to address address the complaints or the the the, the feedback what you're getting so it's very important to uh, look into the uh, the postmortem side and i think the risk management is a key part that goes through all of that like starting from design to the postmortem that is monitoring through this process to understand how how we can react yes and that is the important connecting part rather than it's not the design itself right because mm-hmm. the design itself cannot go into the postmortem but the design the connecting feature is this management where it's monitoring to see how delivery data is coming through what we heard design for is working in the field as you expected if not you're getting the data there right there great so well that seems to be also the essence of what 14971 is asking us to do that's the essence of what the regulatory authorities are expecting us to do right they expect us to have this closed loop feedback so uh, you know at this point of time i would like to open the floor for discussion and invite uh, folks in the audience to just participate raise your hand i will invite you to the stage and uh, have a conversation and taylor is requesting to speak so taylor hopefully you can join us in just a little bit uh, and here is david so let me select that as well yes guys so uh if you want to join please uh, let me know now it takes a little while to bring you on stage here and uh, we will continue our conversation okay so ravi teja you have joined us please unmute your mic and share what you have in mind uh we can hardly hear you so could you please get closer to your mic Okay, we'll give uh, Ravi a couple of minutes to adjust his mic. Are you able to hear me better now? Yes, much better. Thank you. Go ahead, Ravi. Okay. Yeah. So my question to the panel is around the P one discussion that we had a few minutes back. So when we define how to measure P one or the criteria to monitor P one, so in the feedback cycle, so in future when we have any event that occurs so the way i am thinking is we have three sources right for sequence of events like use process and design and then we have a severity or harm associated with that uh, in in our hprt like ha- hazard analysis so if an event occurs of a higher severity and then we want to feed that back into our system and we know that the fact most likely it's a use scenario for example that a higher severity event occurs so do we take that information and put it back into our process and design mitigations as well or do we just limit our actions to just use scenario hmm chair do you want to take that hey i i wasn't able to fully um hear that uh i don't know Arun, if you were, and if you want to take that, and I can piggyback what you say. So, if I understand the question, um, basically the the sequence of events is coming from three parameters, as like the process, uh, use, and design, right? And so, how uh, 
the value for P1 value is connected to the specific, when we, when we change the use, whether only the P1 value can be changed based on that or the overall pro uh, probability. Is that, is my understanding correct, Levi? Sorry, so uh, maybe I should re restate my problem statement. So what, what I'm trying to say is, uh, so if, if I have a higher severity event occurring from, say, a use risk, should I go back and look at my design and process uh, risks as well to mitigate or limit that use occurrence? So sh should I limit my corrective actions only to use or should I even consider uh, use and design as well because of the severity of an event. Got it, got it. So my thinking would be is that if if the the root cause of the problem or the cause of the pro of the of the risk what you identified if it is from the use, that would be the first thing that I would target, right? And again, if the use error or the use scenario is able to be resolved, then that if that can eliminate the risk itself that I don't need to check into other process and the design part is my thinking. Again, that once is. we do the risk control measure, you can again think about whether this new risk control measure is adding any new design or if it's adding any new uh, process changes and then there, there can be additional risk in that aspect. So that will be something you have to check once you implement the risk control. Great. Uh, Arun, I'll just quickly add one point to what you said is uh, and Ravi, it's also very important for us to understand what the initial events are that drive that sequence of events, okay? And the contributing factors that Arun is talking about could come from multiple different sources. So you have to do all of them as part of your root cause analysis. Ideally, you should, focus, you should find design-related solutions, design-based solutions that minimize the chances of... Uh, a use error that may lead to that, whether the severity is high or low. So it's really building the full picture, starting from design process use. You can do up, you know, bottom up, or you can do top down. You could do that. So, you know, certainly a lot more complicated discussion we can do on this topic, Ravi. I hope it gives you a perspective that you have to look at the whole picture, right? Not just one or the other. Uh, with that, I'm going to invite David. I know you have been waiting patiently. Uh, David, please unmute your mic and share what you have in mind. David, can you hear me? Sorry about that. Can you hear me now? Yes, yes, we can hear you. <laughs> Go ahead. I had two mute buttons. Um, this question possibly for Jay. Uh, Jay, you made a comment about, for example, if safety was one of the objectives uh, later on down the road, possibly at a different stage of the process cycle, changes may be introduced. And so there may be business risks or other risks that are potentially introduced because of those changes. Would you say that at this point, there's potential competition between safety risks and the business risk? And if so, is it also possible that there's a lack of communication up at the upper levels or a lack of understanding potentially of either the risk itself related to safety or potential interactions of the risks? Thank you. Yeah, David, that is such a good question. And 
you're absolutely right. These risks compete all the time. For example, if if you got a like for a product which is out in the market, you got to go ahead and do some change on that product. And there's a big question around what to do with existing product. In that case, you have a business risk because that product may not be going to the customer directly, but there's various treatments that can be applied to that risk. Like what do you do with that product? And then safety creeps in because if one of the mitigations to that business risk is that, okay, we use the product, then how do you reconcile the fact that the patient may be ending up using a product which is less safer than your newer product? So these compete all the time. And you're also right on the second aspect that the understanding of the technical details of the safety risk decreases as you go up the chain. And I think really good leaders, really good top management uh, personnel, they take time to fully understand what that technical safety risk means. Faster decisions where you don't understand that or you want to be paying more attention to the financial aspects, less attention to the safety aspects, especially in the medical device and pharma industry, that is a recipe for failure. So at the end of the day, like net, net bottom line, safety should be your number one priority. However, the people who are actually tasked with making those bigger decisions around disposition of some of these things may not fully understand that, but they need to take time to understand that and put safety before the business risk. Like that is my personal opinion. Great. Thank, thank you, Jade. I have three more guests here, so I'm going to uh, continue. Uh, okay. Jason, I think I had you uh, come first, so please unmute your mic and share what you have in mind. All right. Thank you very much. And Arun, it's good to hear your voice again. We I worked with Arun a number of years ago. Um, a, as an HR professional, I'm thinking of risk more in the human center thing. And I think oftentimes we, we have almost like a homo economicus problem, right? Where people don't always behave and follow procedures and policies when they're interacting with the product and our processes. So my, my question is, you know, how do you guys, you know, get in to, to, you know, discover competing priorities or, you know, when, when people may be, you know, pushed or have other reasons to not follow a process or, or, you know, things that we, you know, that our quality professionals will write these great, great processes, but they're not always followed. How do you guys see under the covers, right? To see, you know, what's really going on and, and discover that risk introduced by the people. Interesting. Arun, you want to take that? Hi, Jason. <laughs> nice to hear your voice too. Um, and this is a very interesting question I've not much thought about, but I, I think this is one thing I, I was also saying in the earlier in the in the talk is that it's all about the risk what is defined to you, right? So so in the case of a, a quality professional in medical devices, his main concern is a patient safety, right? Um, if you are focusing on a clinical trial, then the the patient safety and data integrity is something that you are keen on. And in the case of an HR, might be the, the, the interesting risk is that are the employees following the process? And if not, uh, what is the risk of that, right? That, so that's the that's where I would see like my overall risk is and then try to see how, what are the risks that arises if the employees doesn't follow something and then try to see the severity of that. Mm -hmm. And what you're saying is that in an organization, we have multiple 
factors and multiple considerations. That's why Jayat's initial point about objectives becomes important, right? All of these objectives uh-huh. are important, not one or the yeah. other. And when HR is concerned, I think employee engagement, employee satisfaction, that's also very important. So I guess the point here is risk professionals, we should be aware of all these multidimensional aspects of risk management and help our management make the most optimal decision in a given situation, right? It's a team effort. It's a team effort. So uh, let me now invite Vikas. We have so much uh, discussion today, guys, and I love this. And we will continue because I want to make sure you get your questions answered or your comments. So Vikas, go ahead, unmute your uh, mic and share what you have in mind. Uh, Yes, uh, thanks for this opportunity. Uh, My question is related to those sequence of events or the hazards which are very much random in nature, for example, electromagnetic uh, interference. So uh, for this instance, what are the simplest steps to quantify the severity and uh, occurrence probabilities, especially such kind of uh, random events? Okay, Jayad, you want to take that? Yeah, so I think 14971 identifies electromagnetic energy as a hazard. And you've got to understand your product to find out how that hazard will lead to sequences of events that will cause hazardous situations. For example, if you have a pacemaker and you're going through an x-ray machine in an airport, that's the hazard of electromagnetic energy interacting with your device, which is the pacemaker. So you've got to be able to understand how that energy interfaces with the components of your device and what will it lead to. So your defects, malfunctions, failure modes will lie in the spectrum somewhere before hazards and going down to the hazardous situations. With that, you will have a list of hazardous situations. That would be, okay, electromagnetic energy causes a short or you know overcurrent on something or causes something to melt. And based on that, you will uh, you will assign with uh, input from your clinical and medical teams what harms could what the end harm could result to the patient, right? And then all of this will have to be assigned values. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Uh, yes. Just uh, one small follow-up question. So, uh, in order to uh, like, if I take the same example, pacemaker near to some electromagnetic environment, then in this case, how can I consider the sample size? I mean, should I have to consider the same manufacturer or the devices which are already uh, uh, installed uh, in the globe? How, how can I consider the sample size? Yeah, that will the probabilities. Uh, so, yeah, so you're asking you need to do sampling for whatever testing reason, and you're saying, how do I decide on that sampling? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that seems to be the question, Jade. Okay, and that, so all sampling needs to be risk-based or either risk-based or guided by the standard. Some standards, usability standards, for example, have set number of samples you need to take. You can take that sample, apply statistics to it, and come up with a, a expected failure value based on your reliability numbers. Uh, other cases, uh, you know, people use all kinds of statistical methods. Uh, AQLs use uh, verification testing to come to, uh, and there's various various statistical tools and confidence intervals and things of that nature uh, yeah. you can you can do. And uh, Arun maybe can shed some more light on those. Yeah, 
so basically the higher high the higher the risk the the higher the number of samples that you'll be using right so the, again that will be defined through your process wherein you say for low risk you will be using the number of, like the the reliability and confidence number will be 95 99 90 90 or 90 80 and based on that the number of samples will be determined in the verification testing but in, in typically this electromagnetic testing we have the the IAC standards which define the number of samples most be are required that's a good point so because i think the the tip here is uh, look at the applicable standards for the medical device first because they will tell you in most likelihood they'll tell you what to do how much how many samples and what kind of acceptance criteria you should have so uh, let's leave it at that for now i know prashant you have been waiting patiently so i want to invite you to unmute your mic and share what you have in mind sure thank you can you hear me all right yes thank you okay perfect hey um so in this conversation so far i think we haven't really touched upon the uh, residual risk or the concept of residual risk and how far risk mitigation is uh, is necessary do, do the speakers today have any thoughts on best practices on identifying the acceptable amount of uh, residual risk and what uh, post market studies can also contribute to that wonderful question so prashant just to clarify you know that residual risk idea will apply to individual risks and also the overall risk so with that uh, framework jet you want to uh, say a few things about that yeah so from the mdr standpoint the answer is as low as possible right as far as possible right as far <laughs> as, as possible as far as as far as possible that's fair uh, but how far is uh, is what okay. so yeah I, yeah so that's where you're going um so <laughs> so firstly no financial considerations allowed uh so that's the that's the european rule uh secondly your acceptability criteria goes a long way because that's what everything is based on and now that we have got some experiences on how different notified bodies and what they're really expecting out of that clause and uh, in your benefit risk analysis uh i think to me the crucial step there is how you structure your risk matrix how you define what what your probability or occurrence scale is and how what do you say when you do those boxes like what is acceptable what is unacceptable uh based on that once because that is critical and a lot of times people don't pay a lot of attention to that risk matrix and there's like all these massive communications about hey how do we take it from an acceptable to acceptable let's take a step back and say who defined those severity scales and those risk uh acceptability scales like is there any solid basis around those numbers do we need to revise those numbers itself before building the whole building of uh you know your a particular individual risk being acceptable or unacceptable right so and we again to, we we have to do that first right that's what you're saying put that first before you even start usually that is done in the rmp right mm-hmm. so yes. per procedure that is supposed to be done first however like it is like a standard sort of right so you're not nobody is double checking if that makes sense for various products and certain companies sort of try to do it for every product differently and that's a whole different issue as well but again to again i'll just add a couple of more lines to this because it's a very big topic uh benefit risk analysis is whether you have an opportunity to justify whatever you do right that's the place where 
as low as possible and all that sort of stuff and comparison with the harmonized standard all of that comes in to justify how low did you go why did you go why didn't you go further that what's what's the impact on the benefit risk ratio so your benefit risk document gives you a chance to uh, come clean as well so mm-hmm. that that's where I'll stop so Prashant I'll add two more very specific points for you on that and I know Ed is on the panel waiting very patiently Ed will have a lot more to say about this two specific points for you one is look up standards product specific standards they'll give you a lot of information about what you can do to define your acceptability criteria second thing is FDA has provided several benefit risk guidances look those up because FDA actually gives you a template a worksheet template that will help you build a case for benefit risk ed i know you have been waiting very patiently so i want to invite you maybe share a few thoughts on this topic or any other thing that we have talked about uh, can you hear me nate mabeen yes i can okay good uh the first one i want to uh address is uh someone brought up the thing about not following procedures that is very dangerous in the US. If you have a US product and you don't follow your own procedures, you are at risk of a warning letter. And the FDA will write a warning letter quicker on not following your own procedures than into violating the regulations. Because <laughs> yes. they think that if you don't follow your own procedures, they cannot trust you for any of the information you have. So do not uh, violate your own procedures. If you have a problem, you revise the procedure. You don't violate it. So that's the first thing I want to say. Great. Okay. Yes. The second one is um, Jayet mentioned ISO thirty one thousand, and uh, that business risk standard is important for a business to to follow, but it is a separate and distinct process from safety risk. And somewhere up the chain, after the two standards have identified issues, the management makes a decision about which way to go. But you never want to trump um, safety with cost. And that's kind of where uh, the uh, Europeans um, brought up the the issue of, uh, of ALARP, which interestingly enough, as low as reasonably practicable, was put in the standard at the insistence of the <laughs> Europeans. <laughs> and then uh, they turn around and take it back out. But really, where you, and Jay had pointed this out too, where you make decisions on cost is really in the benefit area. Because if, if uh, you have to uh, uh, increase the cost of the product to the point that it's not available, that benefit's not available, then uh, you have a case for um, doing something different uh, <laughs> than uh, the, the cost issue. But this is a great discussion today, and, and uh, we've had a lot of participation in here. Yeah, and uh, so, so what I'm hearing you say is that when it comes to overall benefit risk, you could consider practicability and economic feasibility cost as a discussion point to understand the balance between benefit and risk. Right? That's what you're saying. Don't ignore it. It's a business decision. Well, the, 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 the point is, 
if you have to increase the cost at the point that you can't manufacture the product, correct? Then the benefit's not available to the patient, correct? correct. So that's that's the the trade off that and uh, pharmaceuticals addresses the same thing and in ICHQ nine is the uh, benefit to risk um, comparison there. And it's a non-availability of product is not acceptable uh, if, if there is a, a major benefit mm-hmm. to that product. Got it, got it. So again, guys, excellent discussion today. Thank you so much for, for participating. Jayat and Arun, I wanna thank you and give you an opportunity to share some closing comments. Arun, you wanna go first? Sure. No, I think, uh, thank you. I think this is a great uh, e- event wherein people can come and learn and also discuss risk sites because in some instance, in your organization, you are the only person who knows the risk and it's very hard to connect with somebody who is, who is in the industry who knows more and also understand some of their ways of thinking. So I think this is great. Thank you for having me and I think uh, it could be a good discussion. Thank you. Thank you, Arun. Jayat, please share your thoughts. Yeah, I just wanted to thank you, Naveen. I think this is a great forum, and uh, the the audience is also, you know, on a uh, expert level, right? So we get very good questions, and it's a very enlightening discussion. And especially for the time we are here and the knowledge we're getting out of it, uh, you know, a lot of value for your money, right? So uh, this is a great forum. Thanks, and thank you for everybody else for listening to me. Thanks, guys. And I will make two key points here. First one is our main goal here is to connect people. So guys, if if you didn't know, you can connect with anybody in the audience directly even if they are not your first degree contact. Second point I want to make is that we are not going to solve problems in a deeper way. Right? It, it, we are we are trying to create discussion, conversation and connectivity with people that you can follow up for more detailed conversations. And we'll have you know some other ways to share more detailed information and really actionable insights with you. But this forum is more about having a general level conversation and creating relationships. Having said that, uh, we are gonna meet every week, 11 a.m. Eastern on Fridays. If you cannot join, I will prepare recordings. And in fact, I've been publishing them on my newsletter. You can find the link to my newsletter in the featured section of my profile on LinkedIn if you're already not on that. So you will have access to these recordings with some highlights and key points. Uh, and I appreciate your participation. Stay engaged, you know, come come and join these events as much as possible. And if not, watch those recordings and share your thoughts and comments. With that, guys, I wanna thank you for attending again. Let's connect once again next week and build these relationships with each other in the industry so that we can enhance, collectively enhance, our capability in risk management. Thank you all. Have a good weekend.